You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 28 through verse 30 is where we are going to start today. I'll read this to you and then um, we'll dive into the teaching for the day. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray together. Father, we stop and we pause, and um, we recognize the word that was just read is active and living. It is your word, and it's just as powerful as we read this as if you were standing here speaking it to us. And so help now through the power of your Holy Spirit to capture our imaginations, to open up our eyes, to see you as you really are, and therefore ourselves as who we are in you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, on a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone will drop to zero. And faced with this realization, great thinkers throughout history have wrestled with this very simple and yet profound question which is the question, where is my life heading? A question that has driven many men mad or even to despair. I think about a series of essays known as the myth of Sisyphus, where after pondering the meaning of life, French philosopher Albert Camus wrote, and I quote, the only serious philosophical question one should ask is whether or not to kill themselves. I think even about Solomon who is one of the wisest and wealthiest men to ever live. And in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, he wrote, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I've seen everything that is done under the sun. And this man literally had done like everything under the sun. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. According to Tyler Durden from the movie Fight Club, apparently this is your life, and it's ending one moment at a time. And because there is no amount of education or Instagram followers or family or friends or fame that can save us from that reality, the question that all of us, I think, are asking today, or at least the question all of us should be asking, is what exactly is my life coming to? What is all of this about? Where is it that I am actually going? And fortunately, as we continue in our series, what we will discover is that our union with Christ answers that question for us. What union with Christ tells us, and we've learned this over the last few weeks, is that we have received a whole new identity. That what is true of Jesus is now true of you. Because at the cross he was treated the way we deserve to be treated for our sinfulness. When we trust in his life, death, and resurrection, we can now be treated the way only he deserves to be treated for all eternity. We have received a new identity as as beloved sons and daughters of God. But as we move forward in our series today, what we are going to learn is that our union with Christ not only gives us a whole new identity, but it also gives us a brand new destiny. 
It gives us an unshakable hope that has the potential today to propel us forward through suffering and hardship and exhaustion into the most surprising and glorious destination imaginable. But in order for us to get a glimpse of this destination, in order for us to understand where it is that we are going, we need to understand where we have come from. So, in the words of uh, the great theologian Bob Dylan, we need to go back to the garden where we were born. So if you will, flip with me. Hold your spot in Romans 8, but flip to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and if you need help finding it, it is literally on page 1 in my Bible. And so you can just open it up. It should be right there, Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put the text on the screen for you. But let's look in verse 26 and verse 27 at how this all began. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, that phrase, if you look back in verse 27, that phrase, the image of God, is actually a phrase that was used long before the book of Genesis was written. And it is a phrase that was used in the ancient Near East, which is the context this was written in. It was a phrase that was used for one person and one person only, the king. The only person on the planet who actually represented or was believed to represent God or the gods to the world. And therefore, if you would have been a part of this original audience and if you would have read this or heard this phrase, the image of God what you would have realized is that to be created in the image of God would have been this revolutionary and mind-blowing idea because what it tells you is that to be created in the image of God means that no matter who you are or where you come from, that you, in fact, are created as royalty, as a king or a queen who is meant to rule and reign over God's creation under God's rule and reign, to represent him to the world. This is what it means, according to Genesis, to be a human being. And it is a reality that I would say each of us feel in the depths of our DNA this morning. It's why basically every Disney movie is about a prince or a princess. It's why we connect so well with stories like Chronicles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. It's why we love characters like Luke Skywalker, who was just born as this poor orphan Stuck with his aunt and uncle as a moisture farmer in this empty, abandoned planet on the, you know, the, the outer rim of society. But by the end, right, he becomes royalty. Why do these stories connect with us like they do? Well, listen, it's because it taps into a deep part of our humanity. It taps into this deep desire that God has given us, that he has placed in our bones to live as royalty. This is what it means to be created in the image of God. But more than that, because the king in this culture was not only considered to be royalty, but also a priest-like figure who alone had direct access to God, to be created in the image of God meant to the original audience not only that they were created as royalty, but that we are as human, being, as human beings created actually as royal priests. Now that's a term that we don't use a lot in our culture today, but it's something we see brought up over and over again in the scriptures. For example, in the Old Testament, in Exodus 19.6, God says to Israel that I have called you out so that you will be a kingdom of priests. We see this in the New Testament in places like 1 Peter 2.9 where Peter says, because of your union with Christ, you are now a part of a royal priesthood. Now, where does this language come from? Well, it comes from Genesis chapter 1. 
where we learn what it means to be created in the image of God. That it means not only to be created like God, but literally to be created as royal priest. Now, if that is true this morning, and it is, what that means is no matter who you are or where you come from, whether you're black or white, you're young, you're old, you're rich or poor, you're educated, you're not educated, no matter what your family background is, no matter what your personality type is, what that means is today every single person in this room was created for grandeur. You were created for beauty and for purpose and significance. The problem is something has gone terribly wrong. And as a result, we all know that something is now, something inside of us is off. It is amiss. Things are not the way they should be. And as a result, if we can be honest today, it has left many of us feeling like anything but royal priests. I think about the words of Carl Rogers, who is the father of client-centered therapy, who concluded after decades of observing thousands of his own clients the following, that the central core difficulty in people is that in the great majority of cases, they despise themselves and regard themselves as worthless and unlovable. Put another way, what Rogers is saying is, The reason so many people have so many issues is deep down inside they know something is wrong. And rather than waking up every morning and seeing themselves as royal priests, they see themselves, in his words, and I quote, worthless and unlovable. So the question is, what has gone wrong? Why is it that so many of us, if we can be honest, and we lay our heads down at night and there's no one else around, why is it that when we think thoughts about ourselves, typically it's unloving thoughts? In fact, some of us maybe even despise ourselves. Why is that? And in order to answer that question, I think we need to consider some Renaissance art, which I know will make you happy, Andy. Um, And so I want you to look. I think we have a picture, do we? Uh, We can put it on the screen. Yeah, okay. So this is the only sculpture that Michelangelo ever signed. It's called the Pieta. hope I'm saying that correctly. Uh, My wife said I should say that with an accent, but I can't. And so um, other than my Arkansan accent. But it's a sculpture, as you can see, as Mary holding her crucified son. And what you need to know about the Pieta is this. It was installed in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome in 1500, where it remained undisturbed for 472 years until in 1972. And can we go to the next picture? Until 1972, you can see there a scandal, right, or a vandal broke past security, and he smashed the sculpture repeatedly with a hammer. And as you can see, barely at the top of this picture, it shattered Mary's left arm. It also, which you can't see in the picture, severely damaged her nose, veil, and left eye, leaving this treasure of Renaissance art, a marred masterpiece in need of restoration. And therefore, because this, if you go to the next slide, over the next year, using a block of marble from the unseen back of the sculpture, a team of experts painstakingly restored the statue to its original beauty. And if you go back to that, the very last one, yeah, and there it is. Now, leave that picture up and listen. The reason I share that is I want you to consider this. The story of the Pieta is our story. Because what Genesis 1 says is that we were created as God's masterpiece. But according to Genesis chapter 3, a vandal has entered into our world and savagely attacked God's masterpiece. Human beings... And as a result, what this then means is, listen, the image of God in us, though it has not been completely erased or lost, it has been damaged, disfigured, and disfaced. To make matters worse, according to Genesis chapter 3, we now not only have to live with an enemy outside of us, the Bible calls the devil, 
But we also have to live with an enemy inside of us that the Bible calls sin. And when you think of sin, listen, please don't think of sin as just breaking the rules or as forbidden pleasure. Uh, One of the reasons I had such an issue with God for such a majority of my life, even though I grew up in church, is I thought, man, if God is so good, why is it that he keeps telling me to quit doing all the stuff that seems like it's most pleasurable? Anybody else ever thought that? It's like it's almost like God is just trying to keep me from certain really good pleasures. And I just used to think to myself, like, what is up with that? And I think there's a lot of people in the religious South, especially, who believe the same thing, who look at the church and they see something that's grim and pessimistic and life-denying and judgmental. And as a result, they believe the lie that Christianity is more about rules to be followed than a joy to be found. And maybe that's where some of you are this morning. But I want you to understand, when you think of sin, don't think of it as forbidden pleasure but rather think of sin as settling for a far lesser pleasure. When you think of sin, don't think of it as something that keeps you from fun, but think of sin as something that keeps you from flourishing and actually living up to your created potential. I want to say that again because nobody talks that way in our culture. When you think of sin, do not think of sin as something that keeps you from having fun, but think of sin as something that keeps you from flourishing and living up to your created potential. And therefore, because of this, listen, because we have an enemy outside of us and because we have an enemy inside of us, though we were born as royal masterpieces, we have all, because we were born into a fallen world, been marred. And the glorious image that is inside of us now needs to be restored. So the question is, what do we do about it? How can this glorious image of God be restored inside of us? And the answer to that question is the only way that we can ever experience the redemption and the restoration that we are longing for is by looking to the perfect masterpiece, Jesus Christ, who was marred on our behalf. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1.15, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. In other words, he is the one who shows us not only what God is like, but what the perfect human being is like. And what's incredible and the gospel story tells us is that despite the fact that Jesus was perfect, despite the fact that he never sinned or they never gave in to the attacks of the enemy, he went to the cross as a perfect human being who never sinned. And he went there and he suffered in our place. And in the words of the prophet Isaiah, what happened there is he would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities so that through his chastisement we could find peace and by his wounds we could be healed. Jesus Christ came to this earth to give us an example of what a perfect human being looks like. By showing us what it looks like to live dependent and obedient and compassionate and merciful and humble and full of love as this royal servant. But even more than Jesus coming here and giving you an example of what it looks like to be a perfect human, the gospel tells you that he came to this earth as a way to give you a, 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 now a way to become a perfect human being. By atoning for our sins and paying our debt, Jesus came to this earth to restore you and me to our created dignity. He came here to give you not only a whole new identity, but this new destiny that you get to step into. Or one day you will be fully restored. Just as with the Pieta, just as it needed a master artist to take material from an existing statue so that in painstaking fashion, a ruined masterpiece could be restored. So has God, the original master artist, 
used material from his existing creation in a painstaking fashion so that now his ruined masterpiece could be restored. And this is a hope that can be yours if you have been united to Christ. A hope of knowing that because you are now in Christ and he is in you, that you can now be set free. Listen, guys, you can now be set free to be your true self. To be yourself, who you were created to be, not by nature, but by grace. In the words of Rankin Wilburn, he says, if you have been united with Christ, he says, the tarnished image of God in you has been fully redeemed and is now being fully restored and one day will be finished. So to answer the question, where am I going? Where is my life heading. Well, if you have been united to Christ, what the scripture tells us is you are moving towards becoming a fully and perfectly complete, joy-filled, Christ-like human being. That is your destiny. And the verse that sums this up is the verse we read when we started the whole thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And I want you to just turn back with me now. I don't want to read this to you again. With all of that said, Romans chapter 8 and actually verse 29, I want you to hear this again. Maybe with fresh ears this morning. Paul says, For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That word... Predestined carries a lot of baggage in Paragold, Arkansas. But it is actually a word that was never meant to confuse you or scare you. But rather, it's a word that's meant to comfort you. Because if you think about it, if something is predestined, what that means is that it is fixed. It is a promise. It is something that is set in stone. And what's so amazing about that in the context of this verse is what does Paul say is predestined? What is it that he says is fixed? Well, it's the reality that because you have been united to Christ, you will be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what he just said there. And what's so amazing about this is the word that he uses here for conform is the Greek word morpha, which is where we get our English word from metamorphosis, which is the way we talk about a caterpillar changing to a butterfly. And so more literally, when you understand this, what Paul just said here, when he says you have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, he is saying this, God promises to metamorphosize you, to literally change you, to change your very inner presence to look just like the very inner presence and essence of Jesus Christ. Which means, if you think about it, the Jesus that we love, the Jesus who is marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness, the Jesus who is passionate and obedient, the Jesus who is a royal servant full of wisdom and truth, the Jesus we look at who is beautiful and radiant and filled with incredible courage, that Jesus, God is currently using every single circumstance of your life to conform you into. And if you have a hard time believing this, Paul says it is a guarantee. He says it has been predestined. In other words, this is your destiny. That's why in 1 John 3, verse 2, we read, Beloved, we are God's children now. He's talking to people who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, it's talking about Jesus, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. So where is your life headed? Where are you going? Well, if you have been united with Christ one day, not only will you see him as he really is, but you will become like him. Which means that this glorious image of God in you will be fully restored. And you, you will be radiant and beautiful and breathtaking. That's a promise. That's where we're heading. Now, that's some pretty theological heavy lifting in about 15, 20 minutes. And that's going to take a long time for that to begin to settle in and for us to wrap our minds around that. I get that. Um, so let me just try to, to, to end the next five to ten minutes by showing you how this future reality plays itself out in our present practically. Okay? I want to show you how, how if you begin to really fix your eyes on this destiny that is yours, how it can begin to change your life today. And so very quickly, here's what I'd say, three things. First off, on a practical level, if you really do begin to step into this destiny and you believe that, that you are becoming like Christ, the first thing I would say is one way you can know that you're living into this destiny is you can begin to boast in your weaknesses. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, or Jesus actually says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And therefore Paul responded by saying this, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, I'm assuming if you're anything like me, you hate to see your weaknesses exposed. Right? You don't want to talk about your weaknesses, much less boast in your weaknesses. And I think that's because for many of us, what we have been told is that our weaknesses actually make us unfit to be a follower of Jesus. However, we see something different in Scripture. Because what we see is this, is when you understand what your horizon is, when you understand that your destiny is to be conformed to the image of Jesus, when you see your weaknesses, rather than feeling shame over your weaknesses, you can actually boast in them. You can actually begin to praise God and say, wow, how amazing is it that God can take someone like this and conform me into someone like Jesus Christ? It leads you to praising him. And it leads you, rather than trying to, to just sweep your weaknesses under the rug, to say, man, look at this. Like, look, how, look how sufficient God's grace is. Look how amazing he is that he can take me from where I am to where it is that I'm going. And if that's kind of confusing for you, I thought of this illustration this morning while I was sitting on the front porch. And I don't know if this will be good or not. I'm just going to wing it. Um, I sent a picture to Ryan, and we'll, we'll get it up on the screen in just a moment. And if this is good, we'll credit the Holy Spirit. If it's not good, we'll blame it on the rain. Um, and the words of Millie Vanilli. And so, so think about this, okay? Every now and then I go to the gym, which I know you probably look and think he's a regular. I'm not. And so, um, but every now and then I go to the gym, and when I do, uh, I actually feel some shame and embarrassment around the fact that I can barely bench press my weight. Especially whenever there's a guy next to me, he's like all chiseled up and is throwing around like 400 pounds. And so what I will typically tend to do is because of that weakness, I just will try not to maybe do bench press around that guy. I'll wait till he leaves, go somewhere else. I just don't want to be, you know, I, don't, I don't want the shame. I don't know what he's going to be thinking of me, right? I don't, I, don't, I don't want him to see how weak I really am. But imagine tomorrow morning if I go to the gym, all of a sudden someone tells me, actually, Jared, if you will continue to work out, this right here will be your destiny. And do we have this picture? Yes. <laughs> right? 
you will become Arnold. If you will just work out like this is who you will, just leave that up there, man. No reason to take that down. Yeah. And so uh, this is who you will become. Right? Imagine. Well, you know what would happen? I, I, I would be thrilled to die. I could not wait for the day where I could do the before and after picture and say, look how weak I was. And like, look to where I've gone. Like, I, I would not be at all ashamed of my weaknesses. Not at all. I'd be like, yeah, like, yeah, you're right. I can barely bench press my weight, but check that out. Like, that's who I'm becoming. And therefore, like, even my weaknesses now, I'm not ashamed of them, but I can even lift them up and say, man, look at the work that has been done. Right? Look what I'm being molded into. And listen, in the same way, now you can take the picture down. In the same way, when it comes to our faith, as we continue to work it out and as we see what our destiny is, rather than being ashamed of our weaknesses, we can say, wow, like, look at the work that God is doing in me. And therefore, rather than trying to act like we don't have weaknesses, we can just continue to be more and more dependent on Christ and his grace, which will only accomplish the goal of making us more like him. So we can boast in our weaknesses. Secondly, what I would say is this. When you understand what your destiny is, not only can you boast in your weaknesses, but you can rejoice in your suffering. You can actually rejoice in your suffering. In Romans chapter 8, the verse we just read said this, guys. Please hear this because you're suffering now, and if you're not, you will be. Hear this. According to Romans 8, everything that is happening to us, whether good or bad, is happening for the purpose of making you more like Christ. Which is why Paul says in Romans 5, 3, that we are to rejoice in our sufferings. Why does Paul say that? Because suffering is good? No. Because suffering in in itself is joyful? No. But because according to the scriptures, suffering, listen guys, suffering is nothing more than a stepping stone towards you becoming the masterpiece you were created to be. That's what the scriptures teach. And we need to hear this today, guys, because I think a sign of a healthy church is a church who knows how to suffer well. And I think we need to understand today that 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 restoration work, it is painful work. But you can know this, when you are suffering, if you are in Christ, Christ, who is the master artist, is taking endless trouble to ensure that he is restoring God's image in you. So you can rejoice even in your sufferings. Finally, what I would say is this, and we'll be done. One way you can know that you're stepping into this destiny is you actually begin to reassess your wins. When being conformed to Christ is your horizon, your win is to become like Christ. And therefore, because of this, what success looks like, it looks like you becoming a more dependent, obedient, humble, compassionate, and above all, loving human being. And so in other words, one way you can know that you're stepping into this destiny is, listen to this, relationships are increasingly becoming more and more important to you. More than you being primarily concerned about personal recognition or climbing the corporate ladder or making a lot of money or being successful in the eyes of the world, when you are stepping into this destiny, you will realize that success is an increased amount of importance that you are placing on your relationship first and foremost with God and then also your relationship with others. And as a result, as this happens, you will find yourself beginning to look more and more like the man and the woman that you were created to be. Now, that's all I got this morning. But before we dismiss, I just want to ask you the same question I asked when we started. Though I'm in front of a crowd, I'm in front of a crowd of individuals. So this question's for you. Please hear this before we shuffle in and roll on. Where are you heading? What is your destiny? What is your life coming to? 
In the words of C.S. Lewis, every day you are either becoming more and more a creature of splendid glory or you're becoming more and more a creature of unthinkable horror. To say it another way, if you are in Christ this morning, your destination is glorious. But if you are not in Christ, if you have not trusted in him, your destination is more horrific than you could ever imagine. And that is why every single week I stand up here and I give you another chance where you are to fully surrender your life to Jesus Christ. To stop playing games, to stop just trying to kind of mark something off a religious box, but to truly surrender your life, everything that you have to Jesus and saying, I trust that you know how better to run my life than I do. And I'm trusted in your perfect life, death, and resurrection that you are who you say you are and that I, therefore, when I trust in you, am who you say that I am. If you have never done that, I would encourage you to do that right now, where you are, in your heart. And if you want steps about how to do that or, or next steps and a lot of that, I'll be sitting here at the front with love for you to come and talk. But for the rest of us in here, if you have been united with Christ, listen, if you're anything like me, I think we're all tempted at times to settle for a less than glorious destiny. I think at times we all tend to wonder, is the sacrifices that I'm making truly worth it? And because of that, we take a communion every single week to focus on the sacrifice that Christ made for us. To behold the perfect man who was marred for us so that in him we can be made magnificent. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, I would encourage you, come. You can tear off a piece of bread. You can dip it in the juice. We have two stations in the front, two in the back. I would encourage you to come to do this today prayerfully, thoughtfully. And again, if you're here and you have not trusted in Christ, you can come. And I would love to connect with you if you would like to learn more about your own relationship with Christ. In light of that, I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. I'm going to pray for us as the band comes forward. pray together. God, we recognize that you are here. Would you please help us to be here with you? I'm convinced that right now, even in this moment, that that there is a spiritual warfare that is going on trying to capture our minds and our attention. Trying to convince us that everything that we just talked about is not true. God, we have our own struggles, our own fears, our own insecurities. I know for myself at times it feels like I am not being conformed more into your image and maybe some are believing that lie today. Maybe because of suffering that they're going through, they're believing that you have abandoned them, that you don't care about them, you don't love them. I just pray that in a fresh way, Holy Spirit, would you just help each person in here to feel the love that you have poured out for them through Jesus Christ. And I pray for the one right now who does not know you, who has become flippant about the gospel. May God, would you be gracious to them to open up your eyes, open up their eyes. Give them the extra measure of faith and repentance that they need to step out today and to truly surrender their life to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.